my crude metaphor is, if you were to ask me to go out and find three really good Ruby on Rails developers, I wouldn't have the language to assess how good they are as Ruby on Rails developer. I literally don't have the language. I wouldn't know one question asked or the words to assess. And that's an extreme example compared to what we do. But I think in the same vein, the average recruiter, and even sometimes the CRO, they don't know how to ask the right questions to assess best practices. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. The sales enablement discipline is experiencing astronomical growth around the world. A lot of businesses want to kickstart their enablement efforts, but they're missing the sales enablement talent to make things happen. Our guest in this week's episode connects enablers and businesses in his daily work as a recruiter specialized in sales enablement. He'll share his unique insight into what it takes for enablement professionals to put their best foot forward in interviews and how businesses can make better hiring decisions. Please welcome the CEO of Enablematch, Dave Lickman. Dave, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Great to have you. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited about this conversation because there is so much going on in sales enablement, redundancies, hires, you name it. But before we dive in, it would be great if you could give our audience a bit of a background on where you're coming from and what sort of informs your views. So what's been your career journey so far and what do you do now? My journey is actually very funny. Much like many people, I fell into sales enablement years ago. I had some domain expertise and they wanted that, so they hired me as a trainer, as was known then. And so I did that for a bunch of years. And then I went to the dark side. I went to be a salesperson and then a sales leader. I was a salesforce.com for about nine years or so. And so I really learned a ton of really good applicable sales experience there. And then from there, I went to sell at a sales enablement technology company. And that's really where my mind got open to modern sales enablement versus the trainer role that I had back in the day. And so I kind of come to this from an old school perspective, as well as a new sort of new modern perspective on what enablement is when done properly. And so with that experience about almost four years ago now, I launched my company Enable Match, which is a boutique recruiting firm that helps companies find really seasoned, proven sales enablement folks. And so it was my hypothesis four years ago that our profession enablement had risen to a point where people didn't just need a warm body. They wanted somebody who was really good. And so I kind of rolled the dice and my dumb little hypothesis wasn't so dumb and not so little after all. And so I'm, I'm four years in and what I've found is enablement is, is so you know, white hot and important right now. And I have the best job out there. That's awesome. Well, there's certainly a lot of talent movement going on. And especially in the US, there's a lot of talk about redundancy in sales enablement right now. There's a few posts that went viral around those lines talking about the value that sales enablement has to provide and prove and how enablement can protect itself. But then also a lot of posts that help people finding new jobs and kind of stay on top of the job market. So what's your impression being on the front line? Like how bad is it really? And what is the state of the sales enablement talent market in 2022, especially in the US? That is the question of the quarter. I will say it this way. I think for the past 18 or so months, the enablement job market has been white hot. 
And you can measure it by just the amount of movement, the musical chairs that everyone's gone through, by the number of emails you've been getting saying, hey, come join my company. We're the next fill-in-the-blank amazing company. It's been crazy. The comp has been skyrocketing, getting higher and higher because it's been so competitive. And so that's been going on for a solid year and a half. And really, I'd say the past two months or so, that spigot's been slowly turned off. And things have definitely cooled in. And as you said, we're all seeing posts on LinkedIn. Actually, I got a, a text from a friend three hours ago saying she got laid off today. And so I think those stories are happening a lot. And people are finishing up Q2. And so it, it's sort of people are looking at their books and trying to cut costs. And so I think there is more to come. I feel like unlike 2020, where it was a grinding immediate halt that everyone was just like paralyzed by, this has been not so fast, but it's been happening pretty steadily and gradually. I think it will continue to happen for a while until we sort of find our new state and then things will probably rebound soon after that. But it's definitely been this, these conflicting headwinds. One is like the market is so hot, but then also the economy is kind of going in the face of that. And so it's a really weird time right now where those two things are coming to a head. And do you think it's really a reflection of the economy or is there an attitude change towards self-enablement? I think the white hot part has been the attitude has been great. My perspective is this. When COVID started to finish up a little bit, when companies were opening back up again, people were hiring again, the relative import of sales enablement had never been higher. Everyone was hiring. Everyone was onboarding. Everyone had a brand new playbook to sell this way now instead of that way. And so what we were doing was essential. We were the corporate essential workers to help companies get relaunched in this post-COVID era. So I think that's been happening. So I think that attitude, it hasn't changed. I just think because of the broader economic uncertainty, people have started to pump the brakes a little bit. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a recruiter at a pretty fast growing tech company. And she was saying that, you know, she's been hiring, hiring, hiring for two plus years. And then their VC said to their CEO, lock it down, brace for the worst. And so a business that had been healthy and had been hiring really just came to a screeching call from a hiring perspective, just because the VC community was saying like, we got to slow it down. So I think there is some fear that permeates because we just don't know what we don't know. And certainly there are things happening that are giving people pause. So there's fear and there's some uncertainty, but what we do is still essential. I think that attitude hasn't changed. From your experience, like those companies that actually make sales enablers redundant, like what's typically their argument for actually making those roles redundant and laying people off? Because especially when times are tough, one could argue that it makes sales enablement even more important. I'm curious to know that. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, as they say. But I think that the thought they have is we're not hiring. We're not bringing on new folks. Maybe our playbooks aren't changing right now. So we're just kind of in a holding pattern and we have to make some difficult decisions. And that's happening across the board. And maybe because of what's been happening the past 18 months has been aggressive and we hired and staffed up an enablement team. Now we have to slow that down and the business isn't as mature right now and isn't growing as fast as the enablement function that we built. Therefore, we have to cut off 20%, 30% of our enablement heads. I see the logic and so again, sometimes you just have to make cuts across the board and that makes sense. But I, I would caution any company to be really mindful of where you cut it and how deep you cut it. It makes a lot of sense to pick some people, but I think 
I would be very surgical about how I cut enablement folks. Because again, at a certain point in X number of months, it's going to rebound. And if you lose all that institutional knowledge and the people who help you rebound, you're going to be handcuffing yourself. So for those people that want to future-proof their sales enablement careers, and that also kind of feeds into what you said initially about your background as a trainer and then moving into the modern version of sales enablement, so to speak, with your job at the technology vendor. From your point of view, like how has the job profile of a sales enabler evolved over time and what can enablers maybe that have been laid off and are listening to this do to future-proof their careers moving forward? Yeah, it's definitely evolved. And I will say very candidly that when I did the role, however many years ago it was, it wasn't strategic. It wasn't tied to revenue. We were doing stuff and we knew it was good stuff, but we weren't really being measured the way we do today. And so I think there has been a really big shift and even an ascension into the C-suite's mind share. And this is so true. I'll say at least once every three to four weeks, I will have a CRO or even a CEO say to me some version of this enabling hire you're helping me with is my most important hire this year. Literally like some version of those words and every three or four weeks like that happens, that would never have happened 10 years ago. And what's happened is the profile has gotten more aligned with the business, more strategic than it ever has been before. And that's now on the radar of the C-suite. And you, know, you couldn't ask for much more than that, right? Like that's exactly where we want to be thought of. And I, I've been mid-job search where they've stopped and said, hang on, our C-suite was just talking and we want a supersized role to be have a bigger purview than before. And like they're thinking about it in ways that we didn't 10 years ago because we understand that this is our force multiplier across an organization. This is how we either affect change or solve problems. And that is so novel and refreshing. And so I think part of that has come because the technology around us has gotten better. So we're more measurable and we're able to tie what we do to results. And so there's, there's a few things happening in the background that's kind of propped us up to allow us to be in the C-suite. But that profile, it is dramatically different. And I think before... It was all about a good trainer was good with people, meaning I could get in front of a classroom and I could entertain and I could educate and I could convey knowledge. Now it's about how am I using those same skills to build relationships with the field? Different, right? It's like classroom versus like, hey, let me know the problems on the West team or the East team or with the mid-market team. Like we're getting more embedded. Those skills, those interpersonal skills are being sort of weaponized in a different way, in a way that is now on the radar of every CRO. So to actually reach that point where you can effectively collaborate with the C-suite and really make a strategic impact for the business, do you see that people do their best who have actually gone through the ranks of sales enablement, have been in sales enablement their entire career, or is it a question of somebody having a more strategic role in a different area, but then moving into sales enablement. What do you typically see? Yeah, this is always a controversial area because there are some people who will go to their graves saying a good enablement person must have carried a bag to be able to be empathetic with the sales team and to get the respect of the sales team. And there is truth that it helps get respect. It helps with empathy. I would argue, however, 
that you don't have to have carried a bag to have those things. Meaning, I think you can still be empathetic as long as you're curious and you're able to um, ask good questions, embed yourself with the field and do all those things. That will supplant having carried a bag. It takes extra work, right? It doesn't just happen organically. You have to be insanely curious and you have to proactively take the time to get close with the field. So meaning that might sound like a, I'm going to attend all of our QBRs and hear what's happening in the front lines. I might do some ride-alongs or I might listen to X percent of chorus or gong calls to understand what is happening in the day of the life of a salesperson. So if you haven't carried a bag, that's okay. But then you have extra work. You have to become a student of sales to offset that deficit in your background. But I, I no means feel like you have to have been a seller to be successful in enablement. And in order to build that strategic acumen and that business acumen that is required to really align yourself with the C-suite and really understand the big picture of how what you're doing is actually impacting the broader business strategy, are there any typical avenues for sales enablers to actually gain that acumen that you come across that you can recommend? Not formalized, but what I would say is you need to be the best friend and arch enemy of your ops person. And what I mean by that is best friend because you want their data. Like you want to partner with them so you have access to data. But you're also the enemy in that, depending on how mature the ops function is, you might be pushing them hard and really hard for more and more data. I want a baseline. I want to see how this A-B testing I've done has borne itself out in the numbers. And so that relationship should be inextricably tight and you really got to be close with them. And so whether you're guiding them or they're guiding you, I think that's where the gold is because they have access to the numbers and enablement when done right is ground in the numbers. And so without them, you're kind of flapping in the wind. And so I, I would say that's really the best place is just finding a really savvy sales friendly ops person and go to lunch a lot. <laughs> that's right. Build that relationship. and. Even though there's currently a bit of hesitancy and a bit of uncertainty about the economy and some business might stop hiring, I see a lot of businesses, despite those, this sort of notion in the market, investing in sales enablement and actually wanting to make things happen because that change might be coming to prepare themselves to be more competitive in the market. What would your advice be to businesses that actually attempt to fill a sales enablement role for the first time? And... What does best practice in a recruitment process look like? Yeah, let me split this out into two separate things. I think if you're a company looking to hire this for the first time, there are a few things I think about. So number one is focus on the business first, meaning think about where you are as a business and then maybe even the next 24, 36 months, where is it going? Are you going upstream? Are you going downstream? Are you going to have a partner channel? Like what's happening in the business? Because I think you've got to ground the enablement function in the context of the business. And I think when those two things are divorced, it can get out of sync really quickly where my enablement guy is an SMB guy, but we're now an enterprise selling organization motion. And so that's different. He's, he can't really speak the speak of what they're talking. So I think there can be disconnects there. So I, I definitely say focus on the business first and take the long view on that. Whenever I sit down with the business, the first thing they want to talk enabling what they need. And I'm like, no, no, no. Tell me about your business. What's happening? What's your trend line look like? And what changes that are material to the business are happening over the coming years that you know about? Like, how we get into that? So I think start there. I think what a lot of folks do wrong 
when they get their first name on hire is they'll either aim too high or too low. So either they're like, we need somebody who's really experienced. I want to bring in a VP of enablement, though there's no team. And that person might be really seasoned and experienced, but they might be up here and they know what to do, but they don't know how to do it because they're so far removed from the actual day-to-day and the minutia of the job. Or conversely, they might aim too low. I know how to do it, but I don't know what to do. They can't see a year ahead, 24 months ahead, like with this level of growth, we need to anticipate more one-to-many stuff. The classroom's not going to scale. We've got to figure out a way to do things in a more automated fashion, like that kind of stuff that comes from experience. And so I think if this is your first hire, I think you have to strike a balance of too high and too low and kind of go in the middle there. Kind of use like director level is a good level for these first people because they have to know what to do and how to do it. And that's sometimes hard to find in the same person. So I think there's that. The other thing I think people oftentimes will do, and this is a, it's a big misstep if I'm being really honest, is they'll say, all right, Felix, you're my bestseller. Go do my enablement for me. Because obviously you know how to be successful. And obviously you know our customers, you know our product, you know our industry. This will be an easy transition. And there is obviously some benefits and logic to that. I'm not faulting it completely. However, you mentioned the word best practices a second ago. And enablement has best practices. There are things that we do a certain way because we know what works, what does work historically. And so I think to assume the person can just figure it out by just fumbling along, it can be done, but it's with a lot of risk. It's sort of like if you're hiring an accountant, you don't hire an aspiring accountant who wants to learn it. Like that's fraught with risk. You want to hire a seasoned accountant. And so I'm kind of tongue in cheek about it, but it's not that different that you want to find somebody who knows this game and understands best practices, what works, what doesn't work beyond just how to sell. Because again, if you're a very seasoned seller, you're a quarterback. It's all about you. You're the person that's spotlighted. It's a different profile and different DNA a little bit than that of an enabling person. So I think people do that a lot of the times too. So there's that. The other thing I think about, and this is a little bit weird, depending on the organization and its attitude towards enablement, the person might need to win hearts and minds. Meaning it's not as simple as I'm going to come in here, I'm going to build an enablement program and we're good. You might be faced with an array of people who are arms crossed. What's this enablement stuff? I got to go sell and I don't have time for this. And so you have a heavier lift because they're skeptics. They don't believe in the function. And so in certain companies, in certain situations, winning the hearts and minds is more difficult than others. You have to really turn their attitudes 180 degrees. And that's not for the faint of heart. And so what I tell people is, if that's your profile, if that's your company profile, the person you hire has got to have extremely high EQ, extremely high, because they have to turn attitudes around. There's things like that that are just, they come with seeing why people fail. I will say as a side note, when I talk to candidates who have struggled in the enablement job or flat out failed and got fired in the enablement job, when I kind of pull those threads a bit and hear what happened and what the context was, 80 plus percent of the time, it's based on relationship skills or lack thereof. And so when the situation is a little riskier because of the situation, the attitudes towards enablement, those stakes are even higher. The bars are even higher for the relationship skills. Uh, I think it's so interesting what you say about 
meeting those people with arms crossed, not believing in the function. I think there was one of the big revelations in my, one of my early sales enablement roles that the attitude that you bring to the table as an enabler is almost as important as your enablement skills, because. I think as soon as I started to really bring a point home that I'm trying to help everybody and just go above and beyond on making other people successful and not projecting a attitude that says, okay, I show you how it's done and I'm going to tell everybody how to sell, but rather I take the best ways of selling within your team and then help you to become just as successful. That's where you suddenly get all the buy-in. So that really resonates for sure. And I'll piggyback on that point. What I've seen people in interview situations and they fail because they'll say, I'm really experienced enablement. I have this big playbook right here that's been successful in my last five companies. I got it done. I come here. I can implement this. No problem. I got this. And the company, the smart ones anyway, are like, how do you know exactly what's going here on here on the inside? Like you don't. And if you think you're going to be prescribing and before you diagnose, you're lazy, you're intellectually lazy, you're not thinking. And so, you know, rather what they're looking for is, hey, I got a bunch of playbooks in my back pocket here. I'm going to pull out the plays that are appropriate here once I'm here and know what is appropriate and discard the rest. But to walk in and say, I have all the answers with that level of hubris, it doesn't always fly well. And so I think there's some EQ in that of being both curious and also a little bit humble enough to not think you don't have all the answers. That's right. By the way, something somewhat related, you were mentioning before about future-proofing. Like any enablement leader right now who is curious and wants to future-proof their job, if they haven't sat down with their CRO in the past month, as things have started to change in the macroeconomic environment, they're missing out. Like I would be saying, hey, Felix, I know we aligned on this stuff three months ago, beginning of the quarter, well, it's changed. Hey, am I still aligned on the top priorities? What's changed for you over the past three weeks? And I want to make sure I'm tied to what you care about right now. Like the savvy ones are doing that in real time and not being like, I, we did this months ago. We're good. Like this is all happening very fast. And so again, those with a lot of curiosity and the high EQ are living this thing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis to make sure that they're 100% aligned to that CRO, their initiatives, and that's future-proofing. So one thing you mentioned regarding the interview process, I want to dive a bit deeper on. So you mentioned that you should definitely avoid just prescribing before you diagnose. It's probably without putting words in your mouth, it's probably smarter to actually pitch your approach to diagnosing rather than prescribing. What are some of the other advice you can give candidates to really nail the interview process for sales enablement roles? Yeah. Anybody who's ever heard me talk before and been around me, there are a couple of things that I preach till I'm red in the face. I will say them again because it is a ongoing challenge for enablement folks. So you know how a lot of us talk to sellers and we talk about the importance of storytelling. This is how you sell. People learn from stories and that's what resonates. And that's what they remember. Like that's all scientific. We all know that. We don't apply that same thing to ourselves. And what's happening is when we're talking to companies, well, actually we're either internal interviews or external, we're just talking to executives we're not doing a good job of conveying our experiences, our success stories in such a way that it resonates. Meaning we could do great programs and you say, hey, tell me something you're working on. And I'll tell them this really flat story that leaves them underwhelmed. And so I think if you apply those same storytelling principles that we tell to our sellers, 
to ourselves and how we talk about our experiences, that is a huge game changer. So what I always tell enabling folks is whether you're interviewing or not, like I would sit down and reflect back on the past X number of years of your time in enablement and actually write down what are your stories and maybe they're success stories, maybe they're failures, but like, what are your stories and what are the points that you want to highlight on them? What was the problem? What did you do? And what happened? What are the lessons learned? And really knowing how to tell them. Because again, what I see a lot is people who are really experienced, they'll walk on interview and they'll walk out of the person's like, they were okay. Nothing is sticking. But I think for every enablement story you have, I mean, literally writing down the key details, I'd even take out your phone and record yourself telling the story, really internalize the key points of the story. Why was the problem so bad? What did you do and what happened? And I think if you can get that arc of that story down for each of your five, six, seven stories, you're in a really good position to be talking about yourself. Those stories are like the currency by which you get bigger and better jobs. Again, internal or external. So I think there's that. And I, I harp on that all the time because it's still a big problem that experienced people are not getting credit for their work. There's that. Related to that, I think we need to talk like CROs. And what I mean by that is they don't want to talk about butts and seats. They don't want to talk about smiley face charts on surveys. Like they could not care less. We have to talk their language. So they want to talk about metrics. They want to talk about KPIs and just numbers. And so if you're saying, hey, tell me about the program you ran and you're not talking about what was the baseline and then what happened from a metric or KPI point of view, you're talking Greek to them. They're not going to care. And so I think we have to be mindful of the language that they speak and then speak their language. And they don't want to talk training, training ease. They want to talk CRO talk. They want to talk numbers and metrics and outcomes. And so I think we've really got to be good about that. Even if you're, and we're all virtual now, but if you were in an elevator with your CEO and he or she says, what are you working on? You want to have a crisp answer. You want to be anchored on a problem that you're working to solve and how it's going. It's a shift that I think we all need to have to continue to earn this elevated stature that we've had over the past 10 years that we were talking about earlier. Considering how abstract sales enablement as a concept is, do you see businesses approaching the interview process in a certain way to actually have enablers show them their skills, like in terms of the, let's say the strategy development or the diagnosis, like are there certain ways they actually check for that or is that all just done through conversations? It's hard. The good slash bad thing about what we do in enablement is it's very esoteric, meaning they just don't understand our world. I have this analogy. When I started my business, part of my hypothesis was that the average recruiter and even company they don't know how to screen enabling folks. They don't understand how to dive deeper. And my crude metaphor is, if you were to ask me to go out and find three really good Ruby on Rails developers, I wouldn't have the language to assess how good they are as Ruby on Rails developer. I literally don't have the language. I wouldn't know one question asked or the words to assess. And that's an extreme example compared to what we do. But I think in the same vein, the average recruiter, and even sometimes the CRO, they don't know how to ask the right questions to assess best practices. They don't understand how to stiff out what's talk versus real. So we're getting better, but I think a lot of it's dependent on how experienced the organization is with good enablement. If the CRO and the organization as a whole has never had good enablement, 
it's getting very hard for them to figure out how do I screen you? Because they don't have the framework to evaluate. If they tag the people, they might be able to compare and contrast a little bit, but it's really hard for them to have a mechanism. And honestly, the things that I anchor on are the subtler things. It's relationships, it's gravitas, it's curiosity. It's things that I don't know that they always would know to assess that just through my experience and seeing what makes people successful and what makes people unsuccessful, I anchor on these softer things that are not so unimportant after all. Dave, we're running out of time, but I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining the show today. If people want to connect with you online, potentially figure out how they can work with you to recruit more great sales enablement folks or get recruited as a sales enabler, where can they find you? Sure, lots of places. So the easiest is probably LinkedIn, Dave Lickman on LinkedIn or Dave at enablematch.com. Either of those works. Those are probably the easiest way to get me or enablematch.com, you can go there too. I love talking enablement. I love these conversations. So thank you for inviting me. And if you're an enablement person out there, my biggest coaching right now is double down, become non-essential and stay uber curious right now. It's how you become an essential worker. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. Happy to be here. Thank you.